Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show, the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I'm your host, Tristan Johnson. Tonight, I am with my co-host here, Tyson Davis. Say hello. How's it going, Tristan? It's our friend from out east. I had to think about your cardinal directions that time. I saw you almost say west. Because it's the best in the west. I don't know. I, I totally, I totally I know I'm a graduate student. I know my north, south, east, and west, I think. For someone who probably knows way more about Canada than I do, we are also here with Alex Suchin, who is one of my fellow comrades in the history department here. Hi, thanks for having me. And we tell stories in history in a lot of ways, so your story actually begins at the end of a big story. Yeah. Let's get started with VE Day. What's going on? So my project looks at the disposal of munitions and supplies after the Second World War. Essentially, I start with the subject of what happens to all of the bombs and all the bullets, all the bed frames, ball bearings, everything else like that. What happens to it after the war is done, and how are these things disposed of? Essentially, I look at the history of military surplus in Canada in a very general sense. Yeah, so you could, for those at home... World War Two and like World War One to a lesser extent was almost these total wars where economies almost yeah. clashed. So every day in World War Two, right, unimaginable amounts of stuff is being made. This is exactly true, and that's the literally the starting point of my research, right? For instance, Canada produces 4.4 billion rounds of small arms ammunition. They produce 73 million rounds of artillery shells. They produce 850,000 military pattern vehicles. They assembled 16,000 airframes, all within like a five-year period, and it's all very virtually made in Canada. And at the end of the war, of course, there's the problem of, well, what do you do with everything that's left over, right? We didn't shoot all of those rounds of ammunition at the Germans and the Japanese. We didn't need all of that leftover materials for post-war requirements. And so there's a huge amount of stuff that's left over at the end of the war that we don't need. So how do you get rid of it? And so my project essentially starts with uh, sort of like three main areas of the project. And the first is looks at the government's response to this. They predicted in about 1943 that they would need to create an organization to handle disposal. And so they established a crown company called the War Assets Corporation, which was tasked with collecting, storing, maintaining, selling, and destroying everything that was left over after the war. So from whether it was tanks, artillery, shells, bed frames, uniforms, you name it, this company had uh, dealt with it. They had about 250,000 different types of items in their inventory. At the end of the day, this company was faced with sort of two trajectories that they had to do, and that's where my research is essentially heading right now. On the one hand, they rehabilitate objects in the same way that veterans are rehabilitated. So you have the situation where objects will find a sort of double life or second life in peacetime. So the truck, for instance, that had brought supplies to the troops in the front lines, in some cases it was brought home, it was refurbished, and then it was sold on the civilian market to a trucking organization, which sort of gets peace dividend out of these materials. In other cases, for particularly the stuff overseas, a lot of it gets sold to the Dutch, where a lot of it was located. And in a way, Canada dabbles in the arms trade by outfitting our NATO allies before NATO in reality. And then the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of stuff that just isn't going to have a useful second life in Canadian society, right? You're talking about 1.5 million firearms that were produced. You're talking about a lot of ammunition, a lot of other problems, and sort of social and public safety became an issue. And so they decided that the quickest and most efficient way to get rid of all of these various weapons and ammunition was to throw it in the ocean. And so what you have is this really huge environmental angle to my project where you're talking about ocean chemistry, 
the, all of the various uh, corrosive powers of the salt water and other things. And, you know, TNT, for instance, when it biodegrades, it turns into a very powerful carcinogen that affects our environment. And you're talking about millions of rounds of ammunition falling into the ocean, which is a pretty big thing. So then, I guess let's, let's unpack some of that. Yeah, so, sorry. So, um, you might have just laid it all out there. <laughs> no, you, you came prepared. That's yeah. Right. So, so some things, some swords got made into plowshares. Yes, definitely. You had um, one of the interesting things I was always interested in, bullets. Yeah. Because those can stay in storage for a long period of time, but also, like, you couldn't melt them down, they'd blow up. So mm-hmm. I was wondering, like, because, like, bullets, you know, I can understand, like, finding uses for copper. Yeah. But, like, uh, all the gunpowder and stuff like that, I was like, even if it was disassembled, I don't so, know. So, yeah, exactly. That, that's one of the biggest things when they were making the decision on whether to destroy something. So the decision went, okay, can we sell it? We can't sell it. No one wants this particular caliber of ammunition because, remember, the United States produced 41 billion rounds of ammunition, right? So you're talking about a massive international market that's just flooded with, with supplies and no Canada's... for bullets. Yeah, and no one, no one has... Literally, there was so many bullets around that you had so many left over, and so they made the call. Okay, it's going to cost us this much money to take the bullets apart. It's actually cheaper for us to toss it in the ocean. It's actually safer to toss it into the ocean in the context of the immediacy of having to deal with these items, right? They're, they weren't at all thinking about the long-term environmental consequences of releasing all these chemicals because every blasting cap had mercury fulminate in it. So essentially we're throwing mercury into the ocean once the, the shells are corroded through. Hmm. Kind of like the tuna and such. So where well, it's it's actually made it into the food chain. Actually, there there's some issues that have propped up where coastal communities around, particularly like the Baltic and other places, where tons and tons of munitions were dumped, and off the Atlantic coast of Canada, for that matter, that there is some problems with higher rates in cancer and things like that. Yeah, saying this as a historian, which is saying a lot. Environmental history is always so depressing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, actually, I find it really interesting because there's. I didn't really start out as being an environmental historian on this project. I've ended up reading a lot about how war impacts society and, and you know, abandoning things in the middle of the Canadian North, right, because it costs too much to bring back all the American equipment that they left up there and other things like that. So there's a real environmental angle to my project that I didn't foresee at all when I started. Yeah. My first thought goes to, I know that Star Wars... Like a lot of like the stormtrooper guns are actually like old German guns that have been like had stuff glued onto them. So like I imagine uniforms are really easy to resell. And so like was there like I can imagine there would be some kind of post World War Two GI fashion sense, you know, like because everyone was wearing green. And, That's or, interesting. I haven't I haven't really come across like fashion trends being influenced by uniforms in a way. But what I did uh, have found out is that a lot of the uniforms actually weren't allowed to be sold in Canada. They created certain restrictions on what could be sold. Like they did that for pretty much all, a lot of goods they tried to control. But the point was is that they ended up selling them to Europe, which was completely devastated. And same as in parts of Asia, they got a lot of surplus uniforms that we sold through the Canadian Red Cross and through the War Assets Corporation. So uh, old uniforms of Canada's military, which, by the way, we went from having like 1.1 million Canadians in uniform, and that was like one out of every 11 Canadians that served, to about 60,000 by 1947-ish. So you're talking about a lot of surplus uniforms, a lot of surplus bedding, a lot of surplus bed frames. I've had this one story of this poor guy who's stacking bed frames in Petawawa, and he's crushed to death. In, 19, in February of 1946, cleaning up after the war, right? And that's essentially what my project's about. So. 
So let's, uh, let's, let's hear some of the stories. Like, where did some of this stuff end up, if not in the ocean? <laughs> All right, well, there's some really bizarre situations where objects are rehabilitated in a completely new life, let's say. So an airplane, for instance, like a, well, let's call it a tactical airplane. So, for instance, a Spitfire. Everybody knows that. It's like the iconic fighter of the Second World War. None of those were allowed to be sold to anybody. And so, anyways, if it was considered a tactical aircraft, they decided to scrap them. So a lot of the bombers, a lot of the tanks, a lot of the artillery, it gets scrapped. That probably would make an artifact collector quite unhappy and cringe a little bit, right? But the point is, is that in taking apart these planes, they're actually like hundreds of thousands of different objects. So when you take apart the wings, you save the engines and you save the plexiglass for the cockpits and the gun turrets. And some entrepreneur came along and said, well, I can take all that plexiglass throw it into a bunch of different dyes and dice it, and there I got costume jewelry. And so you have this situation where parts of Lancaster bombers are recycled as costume jewelry. And in another case, some guy buys uh, like 20 fuselages of an airplane, transports them to someplace south of Hamilton, and then turns them into what he called tourist cabins. And so he put beds in them with dining rooms, and he, turned, he retrofitted these fuselages into somewhere where somebody could actually stay. And he made a living off of this, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that type of recycling that happens. As much as stuff is, is destroyed and thrown away, it's also sort of like a process of renewal mm-hmm. at the same extent. So just as somebody from Atlantic Canada... Yeah. How much ammunition went in the ocean, and whereabouts, do you know? <laughs> How much mercury did his grandparents yeah. uh, <laughs> eat through the fish there? Um, that's hard to tell. In the first case, records are rather sketchy. And, and if you, you go with any government, they'll tell you, or go with any scholar who's looked at this, the records are patchy, mainly because they knew that there was maybe something that wasn't necessarily right about this, it, it, even if it was the sort of best of a bunch of bad options. But at the same extent, there is some documents that I've uncovered, and and I've been able to determine that they dump about 500 tons a week from 1944 until uh, at least 1950. That's just Canada. And uh, right, the Americans admitted in, 2000, in the early 2000s that their government dumped something like 64 million tons of nerve gas and chemical weapons into the oceans. Often, that seems safe. Yeah, very safe. <laughs> and there's been actually some big recent books that look at that type of a subject that have come out in the, in the recent years that I've been obviously like reading a lot, of, a lot about it. But the one thing that a lot of people don't know is the story of TNT and all the artillery shells and explosives. All those things end up in the oceans all along the coast. They tried to put it out near Sable Island in in Halifax, that's the main thing, but they also had a dumping ground in the St. Lawrence, and there's also a dumping ground off Esquimalt in the Pacific coast. And Canada's mustard gas gets dumped there as well. So is Canada's story here like in any way unique, or was this going on in basically everywhere? Oh, this goes on everywhere. That's how we disarm after the Second World War. That's how we disarm Germany. That's how we disarm Japan. We throw all their military assets that we deem to be a threat to Allied supremacy into the Baltic and into the Sea of Japan and other places. They estimate now that the Baltic is about a third of its seabed covered in rusting bombs. And they built pipelines through there, too. And they built pipelines across Beaufort's Dyke in the Irish Sea, which was the area that the British used to dump most of their surplus munitions. So it's it's a really weird story of uh, environment and and ocean and marine uh, ecology that I've I've stumbled into and have written about one to two chapters on, but didn't really at all plan on doing it when I first started. That's niche, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's our environmental history uh, research cluster going on. So I would imagine, maybe I'm curious about the status of this stuff. It sounds like a 
aquatic historian or aquatic uh, archaeologist dream, or are these things complete red, rusted? Well, we're, we're approaching what one expert on the subject, Terry Long, and, and for those that are interested, there's a really good documentary called, I think it's called Deadly Depths, in, in which it's won uh, some recent awards that talks about this problem in a lot. Terry Long has been worried about this and trying to change the world, uh, or at least change the world opinion about actually taking responsibility and cleaning this stuff up. And he estimates that we're approaching the end game of the situation where within about 110 years, this, the metals on all the shells and all the bullets will have corroded through. And once that happens, sonar won't be able to find the clumps of TNT, won't be able to find the, the assets that are down there so that we can clean them up. So... And as he points out, as he pointed out to me, once the cartridge casings and everything has all disappeared, people just assume the problem's gone, but the chemicals are still there, right? Mm-hmm. And all the, the sort of marine life is living and growing around these places, and then we come by and fish them. And so there's a real uh, uh, issue that needs to be addressed moving forward, at least. Though I'm just a historian, and I worry about how what things happened in the past, not necessarily about how to change the future. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about that, uh, but in reference to the Titanic, because hmm. they said the Titanic only has a few years left before it's uh, oh really I didn't know that more or less gone. I, I suppose that would be true. Most shipwrecks would, would suffer a, t- a certain type of erosion over over time. Yeah. So another interesting question would be all of these factories that for years and years were saying like we need as many tanks as you can possibly get out of here. They the whole thing is fit or retrofit to make yeah. military things, and then like that war's over. I mean, there's probably a bit of a ramp down, but now they're like, how's a factory, a private factory that yeah. might have been on some sort of contract? That's, that's actually a really perceptive question because the factory issue was a huge problem for them. Most of the time when you hear about the Second World War on the home front, it's all about mobilizing. It's all about employing people. It's all about building stuff. But by 1943, they're saying, wait a second, Right, especially the garments manufacturers. They were the first set of organizations that started stepping forward and saying, like, listen, we're going to have surplus inventory when the war is over. What do, you, what do you want us to do with it? What are we going to do? Who's going to foot the bill? And the other point of that is the government had paid for a lot of these companies to turn over to war production. Right, They had to buy specific machine tools, rearrange their production floors, cancel civilian production, all to devote towards the war effort. So how does that change over? Well, the thing is, is that the War Assets Corporation, they developed what were known as material clearance. So these teams of essentially ex-war workers who had been fired from their jobs and veterans who had a lot of experience with some of the end products of this process would go into factories and literally clear out and clean up all the stuff that's government property and pull it out of the factories in order to make way for peacetime production. And so that way, the corporations, which had endured a really high tax rate during the war of somewhere up towards 75% of profits were taxed to pay for the war effort. In that regard, they didn't have a lot of uh, R&D money lying around that in which they could spend to reconvert and also to develop new products. And so the government relieved them of that need to clean up in, in an effort for them to spend money on new products. And so what you have is this really cool situation where the car manufacturers in particular were worried about the surplus Jeep ending up on the car market because the surplus Jeep would infringe upon future sales of the Jeeps that they were expecting to produce in the post-war period. I have this great picture of a 1944 military pattern Jeep right next to the Jeep station wagon from 1946. And it's got white paneled, futuristic design, and the other one's just this barren Jeep that all our troops sat on and found really uncomfortable. So... Yeah, I seem to recall, maybe it's different in that situation because of the different war, but like if you were to take any sort of truck, like because I, you know, I study 21st century, yeah. if you were to take like a truck that they were using in Iraq today, 
it wouldn't be roadworthy in America because it's so retrofitted, but also like it uses a completely different type of fuel. Yeah. It's really inefficient. And the, that, that was the big things that they were worried about too. And, and the other thing with Canada is that we produce most of our vehicles to integrate into the British Commonwealth forces. Mm-hmm. So all of them were right-hand drive. So they were worried oh about yes. Yeah, so, so they were worried about <laughs> that as a safety issue on c- civilian streets. But I, going back to your question about the factories, they're given a lot of money to reconvert, and they were able to like double depreciate their assets and a whole bunch of other tax incentives and money that went towards them to help them. But the one thing that was really interesting is that when the government built floor space to take on a lot of the munitions production, they built a lot of that stuff to be disassembled. So a lot of the munitions factories that they built were specifically designed to fill shells and and all the other sort of work that wasn't expected to be done in the post-war period. And when they took apart all of those factories, they started recycling all the materials after they decontaminated it. So I have these stories of guys yanking nails out of wood so that they could resell the nails and keep the wood, and then they could then resell it to a, a really materially starved marketplace. And there's a report that says that all of this material helped build 9,000 homes in the post-war period. So you have basically like 9,000 homes built out of military surplus around the world, like door frames, window frames, everything like that. Yeah, you can start to really get a grasp on all of the GDP that being yeah. created to like kind of, that kind of boosted us out of the depression. Yeah, so, definitely. So uh, we're coming kind of near the end, and I know that right now you are elbows deep in research and <laughs> dissertation writing right now. Yes, definitely. And so I'd be curious, like, I, I know you won't be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel for like a little bit, but could you think uh, what a listener at home might take away as like the really cool thing that... Alex Suchin's PhD dissertation is going to be saying. Really cool this research. thing. Yeah, I, and to build on his question, I was going to ask, what's the most unique flip that an object has had? Like you talked about the plexiglass yeah. from a bomber plane being used for costume jewelry. Like is that the strangest thing you've seen? Well, that's one of them. The tourist cabin one is probably one of the strangest ones I've seen. But you had other situations where a steamship company out on the Pacific coast, they bought three frigates from the Navy and they retrofitted them to be ferries. So I have this really cool pamphlet that shows what they did with the ship afterwards. And so they start ferrying people up the coast and they made a business out of that. So to me, like the coolest thing about the flips are the ones that you don't necessarily think of, but it makes complete sense when you see it, right? Mm -hmm. Like the veteran who comes home, he wants to be a trucker, right? He had driven the logistical branches of the Canadian Armed Forces, comes home, he wants to drive truck and make deliveries for a company in, in civilian life. And he goes out and he buys the truck he knows best, right? That he can fix himself, right? So that transition, I think, is probably the best thing to keep in mind. And going to your question, it's more about the the more interesting thing is is the fact that objects are rehabilitated, like what they're created in a tactical setting, and then they're made into practical objects after the war. And the one thing I, when I was explaining this to some of my students in in a tutorial, you're talking about Amazon using drones to deliver packages to doors and to your door, right? Rather than bombs. And so here you have this tactical object developed for a military environment being deployed into a civilian setting. And that that goes, uh, you can look at that and see our world is being tremendously influenced by that stuff like reinforced concrete to build, you know, skyscrapers. That's a World War I innovation. You're talking about HDTV that was created to make a massively detailed bomb sites and and precision targeting. And then now it's, it's a commonplace thing in civilian life. And so my idea here is that separation between military and civilian is very, very convoluted. It's a very thin line, and my story kind of 
illustrates that crossover potential of objects and also the uncrossover potential because some objects obviously can't make that transition. Yeah, I really like that. Like a lot of ways that you teach history, people will think World War II ended on VE Day. Yeah, and I like didn't. I love that you pick up the day after. And like, well, I pick up a little bit before, oh, yeah, like, but yeah. on a randomly interesting point, administratively for the government, it looks as though the last day of the war was December 31st, 1946. So for all of the various paperwork, all the various committees that had been created for the war effort, they were supposed to have all their paperwork submitted by that day. So VE Day meant really nothing to them. It, it was all about that last deadline day to get in all their paperwork, right? Sort of like an undergrad or, or grad student trying to meet that deadline, right? So for them, it, it was more about 1946, at least, for, for making sure all their post-war plans had come to fruition by that time. All right, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great. And if you guys want to find more, you can go to gradcastradio.com, and we will see you guys. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com. And it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week. Say goodbye, Tyson. Bye-bye.